Well, happy Easter. I'm glad that you're here. This is the most important day in the Christian calendar. And so whether you come every week or you only come at Easter or this is your first time to be here, you pick the right Sunday to come and we're glad that you're here. Easter Sunday, more than any other day in the entire calendar, this is the most important day. And so we're glad that you're here. We welcome you. The fact that it's the most important day in all of Christianity means it's a good day to talk about what it is that makes Christianity unique. Why is Christianity different than Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, for example? What is the thing that makes Christianity different or what is it that makes Christianity unique? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is that what makes Christianity unique is not what we believe, nor is it how we act. It's not even to be found in how we worship. It's not even to be found in the scriptures or the Bible that we read and we study. According to the Bible, what makes Christianity unique, different from all other religions on the face of the earth, is the God that we serve. Well, that raises the question. What makes the God of Christianity unique? Why is he different than Chemosh or Baal or Marduk or Zeus? Why is the God of Christianity different than Allah, the God of the Muslims, or Brahmin, or Ikankar, or the gods of Americans? Money, power, intelligence, beauty, or the most pervasive God of all, self. What is it that makes the God that we've gathered to worship today, what is it that makes him unique? Well, there's lots of ways to talk about this God that we've gathered to worship. But one of the ways that you can come to know someone better is to understand what it is they like to do. You can ask someone, if you had your way, and 24 hours, how would you spend your time? For example, my family and I just got back from a spring break trip to the Caribbean island of Tobago. It was fantastic, we had a wonderful time. One of the things we got to do there that I got to do that I absolutely love is snorkeling. I love snorkeling, I don't know what it is. There's just something about floating around, especially in warm Caribbean water. Floating in the water, it's just peaceful and calm, and around Tobago are some really amazing reefs, and so there's lots of beautiful fish and just lots of this amazing activity, and I love just sort of floating there, and there's something about it's quiet and it's peaceful, and it's like a whole different world under the sea. Now, I'm not going to sing the song or anything like that, but I just, I love snorkeling. By telling you that, 
You now know something about me, and you know me better because I've revealed to you something that I love to do. But the question is, what does God like doing? How would God spend his time? What are the things that he enjoys? Well, in order to find out and to understand why our God is unique, I want to answer the question, what does God like to do? In order to do that, I'd like to show you an answer to that question from the Bible. So please, if you will, take a Bible. If you don't have one with you, there should be one that looks like this in the rack in front of you. If you open that Bible to page 760, you'll be in the book of Micah. For those of you that have a different Bible, I don't know what page number Micah will be in your Bible. It is in the Old Testament. You can use the table of contents. That will help you find it. It's kind of tricky to find. If you've got an app on your phone, that will make it easier. If you're just flipping pages, if you would all see like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, those are bigger books. If you get in the middle of one of those, just keep turning from right to left after Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's a little book, seven chapters long in the Old Testament, page 706, and we're going to be in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Now let me tell you just a little bit about Micah and his book before we look at what it is that God likes to do that makes him unique. Micah is a Hebrew prophet, and his name means, in Hebrew, who is like God. So it's not surprising that someone whose name means who is like God is interested in what it is that makes our God unique. Well, Micah is a prophet who is writing into a situation in which the society in which he lives is experiencing extreme moral corruption, especially when it comes to the poor. There were grave injustices. No one had any interest in caring for the poor. Everyone was looking out for their own interests in selfishness and pride. Now, there was a level of religiosity and spirituality, but it was mostly hypocritical. People were putting on outward shows of religion and spirituality, but there was no genuine change of heart. Likewise, at the same time there was going on in the sort of international world around them, in neighboring countries, a lot of turmoil which was creating unrest and fear. So in many ways, like the situation in America today, lots of moral corruption, some outward signs of religiosity and spirituality, turmoil in the world in which we live which creates fear and confusion. Into this, God is speaking through the prophet Micah, and he's talking about sin and destruction and judgment and pain and all of the problems that come because the world is in the state that it's in. 
We are going to look at the end of this message that God has for us today in Micah chapter 7. It's verses 18 and 19. So right at the end of the book. Verse 18 begins, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. And then this is the phrase I really want you to pay attention to. But delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now go back to that phrase that I said pay careful attention to. Delight to show mercy. Delight is the word for desire. It references those things that bring us emotional joy. It's used in other contexts in romantic relationships. It's used in other contexts of the love that a parent can have for a child. Maybe you know what it's like to be longing for a child to come home from college so that you can be together again. That desire, that delight, that's what this word represents. It's also used for sexual desires. That sort of longing, that sort of craving for sexual, physical intimacy. It's a word that's used to talk about the things and activities that we love to do, like snorkeling, or playing video games, or eating a great meal, or going on a beautiful walk on a warm, sunny day. Those things that we love to do, the things that bring us emotional happiness, those things in our day, or in our week, or in our month, that we long for and look forward to, that's what the word delight means. And the question is, what does God desire to do? What does God delight to do? And the answer is, he delights in showing mercy. That's what he loves to do. Now, if we could have God up here on the platform and ask him a question. He's here present with us. If we could ask him the question, Lord, what would you like to do today? Would you like to go snorkeling? Would you like to play video games? Would you like to have a nice meal together? His answer would be, no. What I really want to do is show someone mercy today. That's what I really long to do. That's the thing that really fires God up, is to be able to show someone mercy. That's what he tells us about himself. He is a God who loves longs for, looks forward to the opportunity to be merciful, loves it. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like to show mercy? Well, there are three phrases in these two verses that fill out our understanding of what mercy is. The first is in verse 18. Do you see those two words, pardons sin? Sin are misdeeds. They are the things that we do that are wrong. It represents wickedness. It represents evil. It represents dysfunction. It represents mistakes. But not only that, it also represents the punishment 
that goes along with those things, as well as the guilt that we feel when we do them. Now, I told you at the beginning of the sermon uh, that my family and I had the chance to go away on a trip for spring break to the island of Tobago. What I didn't tell you was that was made possible because uh, this church gave us a gift as a family a year ago in honor of 10 years of Lisa and I and our family serving here as the church, at the church. When we got that gift, it was a monetary gift, and we were told we were supposed to spend that to go on a trip sometime. This was great. This was wonderful. So we asked our kids, what would you like to do? Well, our family had never been on a spring break trip before. Lots of people in West Michigan go on lots of spring break trips. That's fantastic. So when we asked our kids, what would you like to do? We'd love to go away for spring break. Fantastic. Where would you like to go? Well, they wanted to go somewhere warm with sandy beaches and beautiful water where you could sort of sit on a beach and someone might bring you a drink that you could have. And they essentially want to go to the Caribbean. Great. Well, I started to research six people, we have four kids, going to the Caribbean during spring break, and it was expensive. (laughs) Apparently, you can't drive to islands in the Caribbean. (laughs) Well, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, how are we going to do this? Well, I think to myself, and that's where the danger comes in, I think to myself, We've actually got this money a whole year before we're going to have to pay for this trip. I'll just take the money and invest it, and God will bless that money and increase it, and we'll have more money for our trip. Now, I didn't ask the Lord about this. I simply went ahead and bought a stock and waited in faith for God to do something miraculous and increase our money. And guess what happened? Everybody else's stock went up. My stock went down. Now at first, I faced this with great faith. Lord, it's a little blip on the radar. You're the one who multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Surely you're going to increase this money so that we can have a wonderful vacation. It continued to go down to the tune of 25%. At some point, my faith turned to anger. Lord, what are you doing? I'm willing to believe, but the money is evaporating. And in my prayers of anger, the Lord gently but firmly reminded me, you've put your hope in money. See, I was convinced, well, of course God would want us to have the very best spring break vacation we could possibly have. We've waited 10 years to go away on spring break. Surely God would do this. And here was the mistake. And the mistake was thinking, more money equals better vacation. And the Lord was like, you've put your hope in money. You've put your hope in that providing for you. Well, you know, maybe you've had this experience where all of a sudden the veil is off and you see clearly what it is that you've just done. And all of a sudden you're sort of cut to the heart. I had that experience and I thought, oh no, this is my fault. Now I got to tell my wife because she doesn't know that I've done this. 
another mistake. <laughs> I got to tell my kids, this dream vacation that we've been praying for, that we took as being a blessing from God, that I've made it less of a dream. And now I feel guilty. I feel terrible. I asked the Lord for forgiveness. I'm sorry, I just, I should have known better. You know what he didn't do? He didn't give me back the money. You know what he did? He gave us free housing in Tobago and miraculously low airfare to fly there and a vacation that was everything that I had wanted for my kids to experience and more. And when we got home and added up all the money that was spent, it was basically exactly what we had, meaning with the 25% gone. That's mercy. You see, while we were having delighting ourselves in snorkeling and enjoying that vacation, God was having more fun than we were because he was able to show mercy. That's what this says. He loves to show mercy. He loves to come to people like me who made mistakes and chose money or made idols out of things to try to make our own happiness. And when we confess that, he loves to come along and be merciful. That's what pardons sin means. There's a second phrase in these verses that give you an understanding of what mercy is. And the second phrase is, forgives the transgression. Now literally what that means is, to make a step or take movement towards those who are in active rebellion against you. Imagine that you're the teacher of a class in school. And imagine that you've got a wonderful class, but there's this one kid and he sits in the back and no matter what you do, he keeps creating disruption and problems, not just for himself, but other kids in the class. And as much as you've tried uh, to set good order in the class, as much as most other things in the class are going well, he continues to be sort of a thorn in your flesh and he continues to be disruptive both to the things you're trying to do and the people around you. Now imagine that one day, while everybody's working on an assignment that you've given to them, you decide to walk over to this student who's in the back of the class and sit down next to him. And you say to him, how you doing? It looks like you're having a hard day. What can I do to help? And imagine that you come up with an assignment that you know he's going to love that you give to him. That's mercy. That's what this phrase means. God is that teacher, and he absolutely loves walking over to the disobedient, rebellious kid, sitting down and saying, how can I help you? How can I bless you? This is what he loves to do. When people are running away from him, he loves to pursue them with mercy to try to reestablish the relationship. That's the second idea of what mercy is. The third is found in verse 19. You will again have compassion on us. That's the idea of mercy again. You will tread our sins underfoot 
and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Last Sunday night, a couple from our church shared their testimony during our Palm Sunday worship service. The husband talked about the fact that for many years, he had been addicted to pornography. You may know about the power of pornography. You may know other addictive kinds of sins, but that sort of powerlessness that you feel when you're in the midst of that kind of stuff, that sort of hopelessness, the way it brings destruction, guilt, shame. He talked about the fact that in his life, that sin, that disobedience had that power and it was destroying him and his marriage. It even led to the point of an emotional and physical affair that went on for some time. And as he told the story, you heard this hopelessness and this powerlessness in the face of these temptations and this evil and the fact that it sounded like slavery, slavery to choices that he knew was going to be wrong, that were going to be destructive. But in the midst of all of that, his testimony was God pursuing him setting him free from all that junk, taking all that junk and throwing it away and giving to them a new marriage and a new life. And to hear the two of them say, we never thought marriage could be like this. We never thought there could be life. For the wife to say, I always knew something was wrong. That's this third phrase. He loves to tread our sins underfoot, meaning God loves to break the power of sin. That if you know the power of disobedience, if you know the hopelessness when you're faced with some addictive behavior, when you know when there's some darkness in your life and you simply cannot overcome it, God's mercy is he loves to come into those situations even if and especially if it's been going on a long time and take all that junk and wrap it up and hurl it to the bottom of the ocean so that it's remembered no more, so that it's no longer a part of your life. That's mercy. That's what God loves to do. He loves it. It's his favorite activity. If you asked him, what do you want to do today? His answer is, I want to show somebody mercy. I want to rescue somebody from the power of sin. I want to move towards someone who's currently running away from me. I want to take somebody's errors and idolatry and sin and the ways they've messed up, and I want to give them blessing instead. That's what God delights to do. And Micah says, who is a God like you? What makes God unique is that he loves mercy. That's what makes him such a unique God. Now, he's unique because he created the whole world. He's unique because he's all-powerful. He's unique because he's all-wise. But that's not the focus here, the uniqueness of God. There's no one like him. He wakes up every morning. Of course, God doesn't sleep. He wakes up every morning wanting desperately to be merciful. Who's like that? Do you know anybody like that? 
who every morning longs to go be kind to those who are their enemies, who longs to take the first step towards reconciliation, who wants nothing more than to take all the different ways someone has sinned against them and remove those and bless them instead. Who does that kind of stuff? Why have we gathered here this morning? Because who is like this God? And if you find someone who loves mercy more than he does, follow that person. Why we've gathered here this Sunday morning is because on Easter Sunday morning, God's mercy is on the forefront. Look at this verse from the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. Praise be to the God and Father, that's who we're talking about, this God that we've gathered to worship, of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great what? Mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Why did God ask his son Jesus to die on a cross on Good Friday and be raised from the dead on Easter Sunday? Because he loves being merciful. This was the only way for him to both be a holy and just God and also indulge his heart's desire to be merciful. This was the only way for him to be able to pardon sin and to bring forgiveness and to overcome the power of sin and death. The only way was through the death and resurrection of his son. And so God, because he longs to be merciful, did this. And we gather together this Easter Sunday to celebrate the fact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is singular evidence that God longs to be merciful. Why am I here in church this morning and not in a mosque or in a temple or home with the internet or the television just worshiping myself? Because this God loves to be merciful. You don't have to beg him for mercy. You don't have to earn his mercy. You don't have to talk him into being merciful. He is longing. He is desperately craving. As much as you have ever craved anything in your life, he is craving the opportunity to be merciful to you today. And that means there's just one question for you and for me. Will you let him? This is his heart's desire. You want to please God? Let him be merciful to you. If you're a Christian, perhaps like me, with money or something else, you've decided your life would be better if, and you've gone about pursuing those things, money, sex, power, whatever it may be, Instead of being content with the blessings that God has given you, he's dying, longing to show you mercy. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. His heart's desire is to give you new birth and eternal life and an inheritance 
kept in heaven for you that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This is his desperate desire to show you mercy, to take all of your misdeeds, all of your wrongs, and to hurl them into the depths of the ocean, never to be remembered again. He longs to set you free from pornography, from alcohol, from judgmentalism, from anger, from bitterness, from all of those things. He longs to set you free from those things, to give you blessing, to move towards you. This is what he wants to do, and the only question is, will you let him? Will you let him do this? What makes God unique? Who is a God like him? Whose greatest desire is to be merciful. 